before we dive in this morning, I just want to make a pastoral plug to you ladies um, about the women's conference that's being held at Pleasant Valley Community Church this next Friday and Saturday. If you haven't already registered for that, please consider doing that. Elise Fitzpatrick is coming to town, and if you have not heard of Elise Fitzpatrick, you will be pleasantly surprised. Elise is a tremendous woman. Um, I have dipped into her writings a little bit, and they are just full of Jesus and the gospel. And I think you will be richly blessed and encouraged um, by attending this conference. I'm sure there's more information available in the office, or you can talk to any of us pastors or any of the ladies who may know about it. So I just want to encourage you to do that. And guys, uh, take care of the kids. Make that happen for your wife. She will be richly blessed and helped. Well, we're in Jeremiah 32 this morning, and the text that Blake read, I'm not even going to touch a tenth of it. I'm actually going to confine all of our time to the end, verses 40 and 41, and that's where we'll be this morning. As the great theologian Bob Dylan said, Times, they are a-changing. We've just crossed the threshold of a new year, and what does it hold? How do you view it as you go into 2011? Do you view it with fear or with confidence? If you view it with fear, why? If you view it with confidence, why? The times are indeed changing. The world population this year, as we saw on the back of our bulletin, is approaching 7 billion people. And toward the end of the year, we officially hit that mark. And there's going to be a growing worry about increasingly crowded planet with more demands on our resources than ever before. Not only is the world population growing, but the world cities are growing. In 2010, our world became officially more urban than rural. That means more people are now living in cities than in the country, and that's unheard of in human history. This trend will continue to grow, and it's expected by the year 2050 that 70% of the world's population will be living in major cities. That has huge implications for ministry and the cause of the gospel in the world. Also, we have this wave that's kind of sweeping over our own country and around the world of the belt tightening and rethinking of government and the role of government. 2011 will be the year when spending cuts that have happened this year begin to hurt. Governments have to get smaller and work better, and the scope of the bloated welfare state that we are experiencing in the West right now has to shrink. States cannot borrow as they have, and these changes will not come without battles, changes, challenges to our economic recovery. China's influence is growing around the world. In 2011, it will officially overtake the United States as the biggest manufacturing nation and the second largest national source of scientific papers in the world. This year, China will launch the first part of their own space station. They are planning moon missions by the end of the decade. Also, for the first time, a Chinese city, Shanghai, ranked number one in the world's most recognized standardized test for 15-year-old students. In reading comprehension, the U.S. ranked 17th and in math, 31st. Also, if we look over at Europe, we see a phobia toward Christianity. There's a growing hostility and prejudice toward Christianity in Western Europe, and this trend is already starting to be seen in the United States and will be coming in the next several decades. Persecution around the world is at an all-time high, especially toward Christians. The top ten persecuting nations in no particular order are Nigeria, Pakistan, Iran, Iraq, North Korea, India, Somalia, Saudi Arabia, China, Vietnam, and Eritrea. The U.S. election for 2012 is already underway, and while political gridlock will most likely characterize the relationship between the White House and the Congress, as we've already seen that the campaign season has unofficially already begun. Not only that, but as we look out of the culture, we see amazing things taking place. Electronic reading has already been growing in popularity. Perhaps you got that Kindle you wanted for Christmas. 
Some say there will be a growing move away from the written word in companies, fewer emails, more YouTube messages. In 2010, if 2010 was the year of the e-reader, the electronic reader, 2011 will see the transformation of the content of books as we know them. Facebook. In less than seven years since this company started, now one-tenth of the world's population is now wired into a single social network tool called Facebook. It's the new connective tissue for a vast number of people all around, this, all around the world and will reach the billion mark sometime in 2012, one-sixth of the world's population. And not only that, anniversaries and special events will mark this year of 2011. Wikipedia will celebrate its 10th anniversary in this month. Twitter will turn five years old in March. And there's a royal wedding, if you haven't heard it. It's happening in April. May 2nd will mark the 400th anniversary of the King James Bible. June will mark the 100th birthday of IBM. July is when Obama said America would start bringing troops home from Afghanistan. September 9th marks the last Oprah show. It's a huge milestone. <laughs> She's a pastor to millions. Two days later, we'll mark the 10th anniversary of 9-11. In November, the world's population will officially hit supposedly the 7 billion mark, and that is also when the largest statue of Jesus in the world is supposed to be completed in Poland, a statue of the crowned Christ. Many other questions still remain as we look out at the year. What will unemployment be? What will the economy do? Who will be the Republican frontrunner? Who will win the World Series, if you care about baseball? Who, will we be alive December 31st? Will Christ return in 2011? What else the year holds we just don't know? What does it hold for you? The truth is, we can really only guess at all of these things. For we do not know what the new year holds, but we do know who holds the new year. And because the gospel is true, we don't have to move into the new year with a list of resolutions that we're going to end up breaking by January 10th. Rather, I believe God wants us to move into the new year by resolving to abandon ourselves and our resolutions, instead give ourselves over to him and his resolutions. He has resolutions, you know, and his resolutions will be fulfilled. In the midst of a turbulent 2011 that's going to bring unprecedented change, God's redemptive plan is right on schedule. He doesn't change, and he will continue his, his operation that he started before creation ever was. So if whatever else might change this year, this passage in Jeremiah 32 gives us ample grounds for moving into this new year with confidence. Because we're not the only ones who make resolutions in the world. This morning we're going to see that God has made some resolutions. And he wants us to believe them and have fresh hope for the new year as we enter in. So three questions I want to ask from Jeremiah 32 this morning. Number one, what is God's resolution? Number two, who is this resolution made for? Or for whom is this resolution made? Who does it concern? What's the resolution all about? And then number three, how is a resolution like that even possible? Okay, so those are going to be our three questions. First of all, what is God's resolution? Did you notice in the text that Blake read how many times God said, I will? I will, I will, I will. I think it's between 15 and 20 times in between Jeremiah 31 and 32. He says, I will do something. I will do this. I will do this. I will do this. I will do this. We can say a lot of things about the new year. We can say we will do this, but really our wills are just plans. There's no certainty that those things will happen. But when God says, I will do something, write it down. Certain it's going to happen. And he promises a lot of things in this passage. He promises that he's going to make a new covenant, and we're going to talk about what that is. 
He promises that he's going to be forgiving people's sins, that he's going to actually have a people who are going to worship him, love him, follow him, and obey him. Because if you read the Bible up to this point, that has not been the story. God has not had a people who have loved him, followed him, worshipped him, and obeyed him. But he says right here in Jeremiah 31 and 32, I'm going to get that. I'm going to get that. I'm going to have a people who are going to worship me, who are going to love me, who are going to follow me. He says as a summary statement in verse 38 of chapter 32, they shall be my people and I will be their God. So that's the big resolution, but that's not so much what I want to focus on this morning. I want to focus on how he's going to go about fulfilling that resolution. What is his specific resolution toward you? If you are a Christian this morning, what is God's resolution for you this year, no matter what else may happen? And we get that answer in verses 40 and 41. That's where we're going to focus this morning. So let's look and see what God's resolution is toward his people for the new year and for all the years of their life. In verse 40 of chapter 32, I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them, and I will put the fear of me in their hearts, that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good, and I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and with all my soul. So what, in summary, is God's resolution toward you this year? It is to rejoice in doing you good with all his heart and with all his soul from January 1 to December 31, and when 2012, if it gets here and you're still alive, that will continue. God is committed to rejoicing over doing you good all the days of your life with all of his heart and with all of his soul. So let's unpack that a little bit. First of all, God is resolved to do us good. God isn't committed to doing good to his children some of the time. Rather, he keeps on doing good and never stops doing good to his children. When things are going bad from our perspective, that does not mean God has stopped doing good. It means, rather, that he's just shifting and manipulating circumstances around to get them in place for even more good. Psalm 84:11 No good thing do you withhold from those who walk uprightly. From God's perspective, as his child this morning, God looks at you and the only reason you don't have something is because it is not good for you, according to God. No good thing does he withhold from those who are his, from those who walk uprightly. It's real easy to throw stones at a verse like that because we can probably think of a million things as a body of believers that we don't feel like are good, especially from the hand of God. But I want to share with you an illustration from the life of George Mueller. Some of you may know George Mueller. He was a, he's famous for being a great man of prayer. And he built orphanages, and has inspired the faith of thousands over the last 150 years since he lived. He lived in the middle of the 1800s in, in England. And in July of 1853, his only child, Lydia, became sick with typhoid fever. And if you know, if you got typhoid fever in those days, it was almost certain that you were going to die. She came to the brink of death, but through her father's prayers and the prayers of others, her life was spared. And here's what George Mueller wrote in his journal after she was healed. Listen to Mueller's words. While I was in this affliction, this great trouble, besides being at peace, so far as the Lord's will was concerned, I also felt perfectly at peace with regard to what caused Lydia's affliction in the first place. Once, on a former occasion, when the hand of the Lord was heavily laid on me and my family, I had not the least hesitation in knowing that it was the Father's discipline, applied in infinite wisdom and love for the restoration of my soul, 
from a state of lukewarmness. So what's he saying? He says, at a previous time in my family's life, I had this trouble, and I discerned that it was because I had slipped into a state of lukewarmness, and God was using this trial to bring me closer to him. But he says, at this time, with Lydia's sickness, I had no such feeling. Conscious as I was of my own weaknesses and failings and shortcomings, I was assured that this affliction was not upon me by the way of discipline, but for the trial of my faith. Parents know what an only child, a beloved child is, and what a, to a believing parents are an only child, a believing child must be. Well, the Father in heaven said, as it were, by his will, are you willing to give Lydia to me? My heart responded, as it seems good to you, my heavenly Father, but your will be done. But as our hearts were made willing to give back our beloved child to him who had given her to us, so he was ready to leave her to us, and she lived. Delight yourself also in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Psalms 37, 4. So he had kind of an Abraham-Isaac experience, didn't he? Lifting the rod, lifting the sword over his child, say, Lord, whatever you think is right. And God said, now I know that you trust me. Well, it's easy to look at Mueller's story and say, well, he got her back. Right? He got her back. He, his, his, his daughter was made well again. Was God doing? But what if God would have taken the daughter? Would God have still been good? Would God have still been fulfilling his promise here in Jeremiah 32 to, to never stop doing good to you? Well, before we respond by questioning God's goodness, let me continue the story. In February, on February 6th, 1870, this was 17 years later after that event, George Mueller's wife, Mary, died of rheumatic fever. They'd been married up to that point 39 years and three months. He was 64 years old at the time, and shortly after the funeral, he was strong enough to preach a funeral sermon, his reflections from the death of his wife. And what he chose was incredible. He chose the text, Psalm 119.68, you are good and do good. And here were his three points for his sermon that he preached after his wife just died. Number one, the Lord was good and did good in giving my wife to me. Number two, the Lord was good and did good in so long allowing me to be married to my wife. Number three, the Lord was good and did good when he took my wife from me. Under his third point about God doing good and taking his wife from him, George Mueller wrote the following, Yes, my father, the times of my darling wife are in your hands. You will do the very best thing for her and for me, whether life or death. If it may be, raise her up yet again. You are able to do it, though she is so ill. But howsoever you deal with me, only help me to continue to be perfectly satisfied with your holy will. George Mueller knew this promise. He knew the promise that God was committed to doing him good all the days of his life. But it gets better than that. God is not only committed to doing his people good, according to Jeremiah 32, verse 40, when he says, I will not turn away from doing good to them. But notice his heart behind it in verse 41. I will rejoice in doing them good. God does not bless us begrudgingly. He seeks us out to do us good because he loves it. Deuteronomy 30 verse 9 says, The Lord will again take delight in prospering you. The Lord will take delight in prospering you. It's not just that the Lord will prosper you. It's not just that he will do you good, but it's that he will take delight in doing it. Psalm 35 verse 27, God delights in the welfare of his servant. He not only takes care of us, he not only promises to do us good, but he promises to enjoy it. You know, this past Christmas taught me more about this, I think, than any other time in my life. 
You know, when you have children, Christmas just takes on new dimensions of joy. When I was a kid, I didn't think that it could possibly get any better than just getting all that you asked for. That was the cream of the crop when I was a kid, just getting everything I asked for. Well, really, giving what someone is desiring is actually more of a blessing than receiving what you desire. And I saw that in my son. Before Christmas, we've been talking about this all throughout you know, this past year, basically, with Christmas coming up even in the summertime. We were just telling him, what do you want for Christmas? What would you like to get for Christmas? And he was always saying, cake. <laughs> He's two and a half. He wanted cake. Okay, I'm like, well, we don't have to wait for Christmas to get cake. But he loves Thomas the Train, and he loves trains. And so we wanted to get him some trains. And so a couple days before Christmas, we really hadn't gotten him anything yet. We hadn't settled. That Thomas the Train stuff, those of you who have had kids long enough, that's expensive. It's very expensive. And so Katie went to Target one day and started looking at all the various options of Thomas the Train things and really wasn't completely settled on what to buy just yet. But as she's walking out the store, I believe is walking out the store, right, honey? She's walking out the store. She runs into a friend of ours that we know, no one in this church, but just a friend of ours. And they struck up a conversation, you know, what are you getting? What are you looking for doing last-minute Christmas shopping? Da, 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 da. I said, yeah, I'm really looking for, for trains for my son. But, you know, that stuff is really expensive. And she said, well, I have a, a, a sister who is, is looking to get rid of all her Thomas the Train stuff. She has tons of it, tons of it. It's like, I'll give her a call and let you know. So she gives her sister a call and then calls Katie back and says, hey, they're, they, they're willing to do it for 125 bucks. And this is a ton of train stuff. So we go over there and walk in the garage, and they've got all this train stuff. And so we bought it, brought it home. This is Christmas Eve. <laughs> and set it up and... He comes downstairs, you know, well, he calls from upstairs first. Daddy, time to get up. And so he, as we say, come on down. So he comes downstairs, walks into the, and of course, Dave and Joy are there too, just to witness all this. So they are, there he comes walking in the room and he's just speechless. Just walks over. Starts playing because we had the whole train table set up in the living room with all the trains and tracks all over it. And so he just walks up and starts playing. And that boy didn't talk for two hours. <laughs> just committed to the train set. Totally committed to it. Now, how do you think my heart as a father felt when I saw my son doing that? And then you know what verse came to my mind? If you then, being evil... Know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more does your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Is that your view of God's heart towards you as you move into the new year? Is that your view of God? That his disposition towards you is he stays up late at night to dream about ways to bless you. That is our God. He rejoices to do good to his children. But it gets even more than that. Because we see another part of this statement at the end of verse 41. I will rejoice in doing them good, and I will plant them in this land in faithfulness. Notice this, the end of verse 41. With all my heart and all my soul. Now, how big is the heart of God? How big is the soul of God? John Piper writes, Can you conceive of an intensity of desire that is greater than this one? With God's desire, with all my heart, with all my soul? Suppose you took all the desire for food, and all the desire for sex, and all the desire for money, and all the desire for fame, 
and all the desire for power and all the desire of meaning for meaning and all the desire for friends and security, all that desire in the hearts and souls of 7 billion people that are presently living on the earth, and you put all that desire multiplied by all those 7 billion hearts and souls into a container, how would that amount of desire compare with God's desire expressed for your good in Jeremiah 32:41, with all my heart and with all my soul? John Piper says, it'd be like a thimble to the Pacific Ocean. You take 7 billion people with all their heart and soul's desire, and you put it up next to God's heart and soul desire, thimble, Pacific Ocean. And here's what, he, here's what John Piper concludes with. He says, because the heart and soul of God are infinite, and the hearts and souls of man are finite, there is no intensity greater than the intensity of all God's heart and all God's soul, and that is the intensity of the joy he has in sustaining you and blessing you and keeping you. That is how much he is engaged this year in his resolution. He will have a people, and he will have those people by doing them good, by rejoicing to do them good, and by rejoicing and doing them good with all his heart and with all his soul. That is God's resolution toward you this year. An obvious question should come. Who is this resolution made for? This is number two. Who is this Resolution made for. Who, God's resolution to rejoice over people and to do them good with all his heart and all his soul. God's singling out some people and he's saying, my heart, my joy is to bless, keep, sustain, have those people in my family forever. The God of the universe who made everything is saying, saying that about a group of people. And the question has to come, well, who's in? Who gets God like that for them? And here's the answer. Every sinner that has been brought into a relationship with God by covenant blood. Let me say it again. Every sinner that has been brought into covenant relationship with God. Because that's what this whole text is about. It's about God starting a new covenant. Now, what's a covenant? There's a lot we could, this is, this is a big question. But at the simplest explanation, a covenant is a promise, a sworn promise that God will do something toward a particular group of people and he is setting up the terms in which that relationship will happen. And he calls it, in verse 40, the everlasting covenant. And he calls it, in, verse, in chapter 31, a new covenant. So we'll come back to that covenant idea in just a minute. But let me say the first part again. Every sinner who has been brought into a covenant relationship with God. The reason why I emphasize every sinner is because this text emphasizes every sinner. We didn't read it, though. I want you to look at chapter 32 and verse 36. We're already in 32. Just look at verse 36 again. And notice the two words that begin verse 36. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord. The therefore is there in Hebrew. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord. So this therefore that God is saying right now, this whole thing I'm going to do for people, depends on what he just said. This therefore that he's saying is the pivot point of this passage. God, he says, therefore, I'm going to rejoice over doing good. I'm, I'm going to bless these people. I'm going to keep these people. I'm going to forgive their sin. All this, this therefore, we have to read what's behind it. So let's read verses 30 to 35 and get a picture of the people he's describing that he's going to do this for. Blows your mind. Look at verse 30. For the children of Israel 
and the children of Judah have done nothing but evil in my sight from their youth. How would, how's that for an assessment of your life? God looks down at people and says, I look down at that person and they have done nothing but evil in my sight from the day they were born. Nothing but evil. And this doesn't mean they were running around killing people all the time. So he must he's going to explain what evil was. The children of Israel have done nothing but provoke me to anger by the work of their hands, declares the Lord. This city has aroused my anger and wrath from the day it was built to this day, so that I will remove it from my sight because of all the evil of the children of Israel and the children of Judah that they did to provoke me to anger, their kings and their officials, their priests and their prophets, the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. They have turned to me their back and not their face, and that's evil. Get this, especially if you're here and you're not sure if you're a Christian. This is what when God this is this is God's explanation when he looks down on someone who has and this when he says they've done nothing but evil in my sight from their youth, what he means by this is all they have done is walk away from me. All they have done is they're supposed to turn their face to me, they've turned their back to me. Instead of doing my thing, they did their thing. That's all it is. He said, they have turned to me their back and not their face. So did God just give up on them? No, look. Verse 33, and though I have taught them persistently, they did not listen to receive instruction. They set up their abominations in the house that is called by my name to defile it. They built the high places of Baal in the valley of the son of Hinnom to offer up their sons and daughters to Molech, though I did not command him command them, nor did it enter into my mind that they should do this abomination to cause Judah to sin. He said, God said, I never even imagined they start killing their own kids and sacrificing them to false gods. But that's what they were doing. And then he begins verse 36, therefore. And what do you expect to follow that therefore? Therefore, I'm wiping them out. I'm killing this people. I am so done with them. They have provoked me to anger from their youth. They've done nothing but sin against me. They've turned their backs on me time and time again. I'm done with them. Wipe the earth out. Let's recreate things. But God doesn't do that, does he? He says, though these people have sinned against me from their youth, though they have turned their backs on me, though they have killed their kids to a false god, I will rejoice in doing them good. With all my heart and with all my soul. Now, if you care about kids, you need to look God right in the face and say, Unjust! You can't do that! You see what these people are doing? They are sinning against you. They're wreaking havoc in the world. They're causing so many problems. Kill them! They need to die! And God says, I'm going to rejoice in doing good to them. I'm going to gather them. I'm going to plant them in a new land. I'm going to forgive their sin. I'm going to make a new covenant with them. Are you crazy? Are you crazy? God, what What are you talking about? You see, these people are killing their babies. And you're going to pursue them? God is not like us. Because none of us would be here. None of us would be here if he was not like this. If he was not like this, you would be dead. And I would be too. I certainly wouldn't be preaching if you knew my background. So the resolution is made for every sinner. But it's not just for every sinner in general, because that's everybody. So God does not look out at the whole world and say, I just rejoice in doing good to everybody all the time. My heart toward the whole world is nothing but good all the time. That's not what he's saying here. He says, I will rejoice in doing them good. There's a them here. There's a particular people here. And so we've got to ask, who are those people? Very briefly, look back at chapter 31. 
in verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt by my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. So he's talking about, he's going he's gonna to do this. But he's, all he's talking about is Israel and Judah and this new covenant that he's going to make with them. And we're not in Israel or Judah. That should be the logical question. I'm not, I don't live in Israel and I don't live in Judah. And I'm not, I'm not, I wasn't brought out of the land of Egypt. I was brought out of the Harrison County Hospital in Corden, Indiana. Or wherever you were born. So that's that's the question. So then how does this apply to us? How, I've been applying this to you this whole time, and I'm just ripping up a Jeremiah Old Testament. This is written thousands of years ago, and I'm saying, this is God toward you, without any explanation of why. You should have questions why. Why are you doing that? It's kind of sloppy handling of the Bible, isn't it? Here's why I can do that in a very, very brief way. Because... If you are in Jesus Christ, if you are a Christian, you're part of Israel. That's why. If you are in Jesus Christ, Ephesians 3, Ephesians 2, and Romans 11 says that you have been grafted in to Israel. Israel is the church of Jesus Christ. All those who are made up of true Jews. Now, a true Jew, as Paul says in Romans 2, is not one outwardly, but is one inwardly, who has been circumcised in his heart through faith in Jesus Christ. Those people have been brought into this new covenant relationship with God. We see that all throughout. If you have questions about that, read the letter to the Hebrews. It makes it really clear that this promise, while it does apply in some sense, to Israel and Judah. It does not, in its ultimate sense, apply to a literal Israel and a literal Judah. The New Testament does not permit us to make that interpretation. The New Testament tells us how we're supposed to interpret this, and it tells us to interpret it by faith in Christ. All those who have faith in Christ are part of this covenant. So the question would be, has God put his law in your heart? Has God forgiven your sins through Jesus? Has God caused you to walk in his way? Has God put his fear in your heart so that you actually treat sin differently? You don't live like this and that I read earlier, just continually turning your back on God. You actually live most of your life with your face toward God, walking with him, following him, repenting when you sin, believing his promises, hoping in him, clinging to him. Rejoicing in his love for you. You don't take all this resolution stuff like, oh yeah, he does that for everybody. You consider that precious, then this is for you. This resolution is for you. God makes this resolution for every sinner who will turn from their sin, look to Jesus Christ in faith, follow Christ. This is God's disposition towards those people. That's who it's for. So if you are not a believer, what greater incentive could you possibly have in going into an uncertain 2011 and an even more uncertain eternity than saying, I think I want God like that on my side. I think I want a God who will rejoice over me to do me good all the days of my life with all my heart, with all his heart, with all my soul, so that even when I can't see My whole life seems like it's just falling apart because of all the, quote, bad things that seem to be happening to me. Nevertheless, because I am in Christ and hoping in him and following him, I know that God is working it all together for my good. Therefore, I can rejoice. If you want God like that, come to Jesus. So that's who the resolution is made for. And finally... How is the resolution possible? Getting back to our big objection earlier. God's making this resolution for sinners who have totally despised him, turned away from him, sinned against him persistently, though he has taught them and helped them and been near to them and done nothing but bless them. Nevertheless, they have continually 
rebelled against him. So how is this at all possible? Well, the only way it's possible is through the life and death of Jesus Christ. It's the only way it's possible. And Jeremiah foreshadows that. Would you look with me at Jeremiah 33, one chapter over? And notice verses 14 through 16. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. And they're here. They're here. When I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah concerning that covenant he made. How's he going to fulfill it? Verse 15. In those days and at that time, which those days and that time have come, they have come. I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David. And he, he, so this branch is not wood, it's a person. He shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. We don't have to do much guesswork here. How is God able to be this resolved towards such a sinful people? It's because when he looks at that people, he sees another person standing in their place. He sees a righteous branch that covers them. He says, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up in the midst of this desert of sin. I'll cause this righteous branch to rise up. And when I look at that righteous branch, notice in verse 16, these people will be saved and they will dwell securely because when I look, what is that banner that's over those people? The Lord is our righteousness. Not ourselves. The Lord is our righteousness. That's the only way it's possible. Is if God substitutes his son in the place of those sinful people. That's the only way. So that Jesus' death actually pays for their sacrificing their children to Molech. Jesus, when he was suffering on the cross, was suffering for people who kill their babies. He was suffering for them. So the people in our community who have killed their babies can be forgiven and restored to a right relationship with God. So the people in our community, the people in our own church, perhaps, in our, in, in our gathering this morning, who have never turned their faces to God, can turn their face to God without fear. They don't have to be afraid of God. They can go to God because God is the one who caused this righteous branch to spring up in the first place. So we have to totally realign and recalibrate our whole thinking to the way God saves people. He does not save people by saying, okay, you've lived a really, really bad life. In 2011, you better make it good or I'm not going to bless you. You better make it good. You better try a little harder. He doesn't do that. He looks at 2011, he looks down at us and he says, I will give those people, I will bless those people, I will rejoice over those people if they are in covenant relationship with me through Jesus Christ. If they are repenting, believing people. If they are not churchgoers. If they are not just in the church, but in Christ. In, by faith, in Him. Then those people have the Lord as their righteousness. And God will rejoice over doing them good all the days of their life. Let me close with a few concluding applications for us. Specifically speaking to those of us who have been brought into this covenant relationship, have been made right with God, and, and do have this promise for us all throughout the new year and all the rest of our lives. If you meet trial this year, if you meet incredible difficulty this year, I don't know what this year holds for you. 
We don't know what this year holds for each other, do we? We wish we could. We would stop it if we could. We have no idea what's coming, not just in the world, but in our own lives. But we know this. It is sent from the hand of a father who loves you passionately. And if God hasn't opened his heart up and laid it bare before you this morning and said, will you please trust me when difficulty comes? God is opening up his heart and saying, look, look at how it beats for you. Look at how I care for you. Look at how I rejoice over you. Look at how the Lord takes pleasure in his people. Psalm 149. Look at that. And if a George Mueller-like experience comes into your heart where he takes a precious person away from your life, will you still be able to look up at him and say, good to me all the days of my life? Good to me all the days of my life. It was good that he gave them to me for so long. It was good that he took them away after leaving them with me for so long or leaving them with me for just a short time. So in the face of trial, we must respond with trust because we know our God. Those who know their God, according to Daniel, display strength. So we must display that strength. Otherwise, what we spread in our community is a false gospel. We spread a gospel about our community that our God is not good, that he's mean, and he takes stuff away from us that we don't like. God always says yes to you unless he has something better. And sometimes that better is painful because we don't know what real good is. We don't know when God says, I'll rejoice, I'll never turn away from doing good to them. That doesn't mean sweet, easy life because that's not good for us. That spoils people. That's not good. God knows exactly day by day and with each passing moment. He gives us strength and he knows exactly what we need. So that's the first. Secondly, what if you didn't get what you want for Christmas (laughs) or don't get what you want in the new year? What if you have some goals, some ambitions, some desires, which you should have? We should be driven people. We should be desirous people. We should be planning people. We should be resolving people. But what if it doesn't happen? What does this tell you? You can be content, right? Because God is rejoicing to do you good all the days of your life, so you can be content with that. What if you're discouraged, seriously discouraged? Things aren't going well. May I say lovingly that one of the reasons that we grow discouraged is because we put our hope in false idols that are at that moment are, not, are disappointing us. That's one of the reasons we grow discouraged. It's not always the reason that we grow discouraged. Protracted discouragement can sometimes be that, where we're actually looking to something other than God to fulfill something for us, and it's not coming through. And so we grow increasingly discouraged. But in the face of that, if we're facing discouragement, we can respond with great joy because we're not lacking anything good from the hand of God. You know, if you're a productive, driven guy or lady who just, you know, has to succeed and has to do things, you know what? If you die today, you've lived a successful life. Even if you don't accomplish all your goals, do you know why? Because when Jesus said it's finished, it really is finished. And you don't need anything else. You may have desires and drives, but you don't need it. So we can respond to joy with joy in the face of discouragement. And finally, what if this year, and it will, your selfishness begins to steer the car of your life, and you want what you want, and you want to do what you want to do, God's disposition toward you in this text is, 
if you lay that selfishness down, if you will serve in the way that Pastor Keith in his Sunday evening sermon last week called us to lay our lives down in service like that, God says towards you, you will lose nothing. In fact, you will gain everything. That is God's disposition. And if we really believe that, brothers and sisters, if we really believed that God was this way toward us all the time, we are the freest people in the world. We don't need it. We don't need more. We can give it away. We can lay it down. We can be inconvenienced. We can sacrifice. And we can do it with great joy because we know we have this God, this God, this God who rejoices over us and delights in us and takes pleasure in doing us good. This God is over us and promising to be this way toward us all the days of our life. We're the freest people in the world. We don't need to get on the treadmill and run the rat race that everybody else is running. We don't need to do that. So may God help us in this new year to be resolved to make no more resolutions except this one. Get to know him. Get to know this God. Let's pray. Father, we pause now at the end of this sermon and ask that where I have attempted by your grace to lay kindling on the hearts of your people, that you by your Holy Spirit would come down and set it on fire in our lives. And that this would take deep root in me and in all of us. Thank you so much for being this kind of God toward us all the days of our lives. We confess that we are we are the kinds of people that you describe in Jeremiah 32 before you made this promise. We're those kind of people. And we thank you that you're not like us, that you don't repay us according to our iniquities or treat us as our sins deserve, but that you are patient and loving and have given your son that we might be reconciled to you and brought into a relationship that will never end, which your heart is completely committed to and completely in for our good all the days of our lives. So thank you. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.